What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4-kilo Irish turkeys are just $39.99. And incredible unsmoked center-cut Irish ham is now just $13.59 for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King Prawn Cocktail and Oak and Peat Cold Smoked Salmon are just €6. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher abuse to next grocery shop of €50 or more. If you like this show, check out my other show, Somewhere Sinister. Each season, we take you to a different location where we tell sinister stories that happen in that area. The first season, we covered the Pacific Northwest and stories that involved a train robbery and mysterious severed feet. In Season 2, we're going to explore some stories in the Deep South, so search Somewhere Sinister on YouTube or use the link on this channel's page. You can also listen to it in podcast form by searching for Somewhere Sinister wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy. In the early morning hours of November 20th, 1988, The fire department in Thornton, Colorado, was notified of a fire at a house on Columbine Court. It was believed that the house was vacant as the owner spent his weekends in a different town. Fire trucks arrived on the scene and extinguished the blaze. They reported finding pour patterns near the entry from the garage into the house. Due to obvious signs of arson, a fire investigator was called in. They looked through the house and found nothing to be disturbed in areas that weren't affected by the fire. In the garage were two vehicles, a restored white Camaro and a pickup truck. There was a missing grate over one of the egress windows into the basement that was initially thought to be a point of entry for the arsonist, but there were cobwebs over the window that would have been cleared out if someone had shimmied through there. Otherwise, there was no sign of forced entry, so the likelihood of a robbery seemed slim. Back at the fire's point of origin, the wood flooring had completely burned through and now there was a six-foot diameter hole that exposed the crawl space underneath. As the investigator poked his head into the hole and moved his flashlight around, he saw a burned gas can, some charred fabric, and what appeared to be a human body. The firefighters on scene knew that the house belonged to fellow firefighter Glenn Harrelson. The body was in a pugilistic position, which is caused by the extreme heat causing muscles to contract. The fingers curl in and the arms bend in at the elbows, making the body look like it's ready for a fight. They already knew this fire had been set intentionally, so this arson had become a murder. But the investigator noted another detail about the remains. The head was intact. The heat from a fire will normally cause the gases inside the head to expand to the point that the head explodes. 
The only reason that won't happen is if the gases are able to escape out of something, say like a bullet hole. The investigator was positive that Glenn had been shot in the head before being set on fire. It was bad enough that someone had torched a firefighter's home, but they shot Glenn first. Someone wanted Glenn Harrelson dead. Now they just had to figure out who. This is Monsters. Sharon Douglas was born on July 3, 1945 in Reisterstown, Maryland to Morris and Josephine Douglas. Morris was a carpenter and Josephine drove a church bus part-time. Sharon was the middle of three daughters in a very strict Seventh-day Adventist home. They weren't allowed to watch movies and they definitely weren't allowed to listen to non-church music. And don't even think about dancing in the Douglas household. You might as well be moonwalking straight to the fiery depths of hell. It's said that Josephine would remove a tube from the radio when she left the girls' home alone. Just in case you don't know, radios used to be powered by vacuum tubes. If you removed one, the radio wouldn't work. Josephine didn't want any fights or noise, so she didn't let the girls play with each other. Sharon, her older sister Judy, and her younger sister Joy were kept apart to play on their own, and emotions were completely non-existent in the Douglas household. Josephine would also get so upset at any mess that the girls were horrified when Judy got the flu and made a mess in her bed. A six-year-old and a three-year-old were frantically cleaning up the sickness, afraid of what their mother would do if she found out about the mess, all while the mother should be the one taking care of the sick child. God was responsible for everything, so no matter what happened, nobody got praised for good behavior. It was all God. On the other hand, if they did anything bad, it was they who were responsible. This only pushed their daughter to want to rebel against her strict upbringing. Not Sharon, though. Judy. Judy was kicked out of school for smoking and was caught talking to boys outside of church. Then one day, Judy was brought home by the police after staying out all night and was quickly sent to a girls' reform school. Nobody in the house talked about it. It was actually the opposite. Josephine demanded that nobody talk about it. She wanted her daughters to be raised right. She wanted her family to be safe and well taken care of. But more than anything, she wanted to make sure their image in the community remained untarnished. In an effort to rein in any sign of further rebellion, the punishments got more severe. The slightest indiscretion could lead to being whipped with a belt and sent to their room for hours of praying. When Judy was back home, she would be regularly whipped with the buckle side of a belt. She once got herself to the police station with a bloody back, begging the police to take her away from her parents. They just took her back home. This is a family problem. It's none of our business. I've heard that one before. Judy finally left home at 16. Sharon coped with the abuse a completely different way. She was overly attached to her father, though she would later say it was only because her mother was so cold. Spending time with her father was really the only option. He was not as fanatical about the church as Josephine was. I mean, he was hardcore, but when he'd go into town with Sharon, he'd allow her to have a Coke, which was against church rules. The girls also found some nudie magazines in a toolbox in the attic once, so as much as Morris was a serious Seventh-day Adventist, he still had a part of him that was able to bend. Josephine was like a steel I-beam. There was no flexibility. 
Sharon also learned the hard way that not everybody in the church practiced what they preached. When she was eight years old, she was riding along with some church members as they went door-to-door raising money. She was sitting in the back seat of the car between two men, and one of them put his hand up her skirt and tried to get underneath her underwear. She tightened her legs and pulled his hand away, but didn't tell anyone. When she was closer to ten, she went to get cleaning supplies out of a storage closet at the church when the janitor pushed her into the closet and began touching her crotch. Both of these men were members of a church that taught against such behavior. This might have helped Sharon develop a sense that the rules didn't really apply. As Sharon grew up, she wasn't the perfect child that Morris and Josephine had hoped she'd be. She wasn't as bad as Judy, but she was definitely not a saint. When she met Mike Fuller, a young man who was working his way to becoming a minister with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, her parents were thrilled. She could become a minister's wife and straighten her life out. Sharon expressed her apprehension about marrying Mike, but her parents were not going to allow her to back out of what was clearly best for her. The couple were married on November 25, 1963. This led Sharon to the very life she didn't want. As Mike worked his way up to minister, she became expected to act like, well, a minister's wife. She listened to secular music on the radio and started drinking and smoking. It was the end of the 60s and people were fighting for more rights and she wanted peace and love and fun, something she didn't get at home. There, she did what Mike wanted. They followed Mike's rules. They had sex when Mike wanted. Eventually, the ministry sent them to Ohio. The lack of emotion and attention at home matched what she had grown up with, so when she started getting attention from other men, even just a passing glance, she couldn't get enough of it. She wanted to know what passion was like. All she knew was a life as a black-and-white television show where enough pumps to cause ejaculation was considered sex. While Sharon was working as a secretary at a printing company, she began having an affair with her boss, a much older man with a family of his own. They were able to keep the affair a secret, but when Sharon became pregnant, her only option was to tell Mike that the baby was his. Despite the idea that they were having a baby together, she still told Mike she wasn't happy and wanted out of the marriage. Mike refused. Their religion doesn't allow divorce without a biblical reason. Since, as far as Mike knew, there had been no adultery, there was no reason for a divorce. Keeping her secret was a bit of a catch-22. Sharon gave birth to her first child, a daughter named Rochelle Fuller, on June 1st, 1969. The baby just added more stress to the situation. It wasn't long before the fighting increased and Sharon blurted out that Rochelle was not even his. In a rage, Mike found out who the father was and stormed off for a confrontation, but was talked down by a friend. In an effort to start over fresh, the Fullers moved to North Carolina, where they had another daughter, Denise. She was Mike's biological daughter. It didn't take Sharon long to start another affair that eventually became known to the church members. One day, Mike came home and told Sharon that they had to move because she was a slut. He said that the church was moving them to Colorado because her affair made the church look bad. Sharon would later say that she found out that the church had put forth a petition to remove Mike because nobody could get along with him, but it's not known which version is true. In the summer of 1976, Sharon and her family drove across the country and settled in Rocky Ford, Colorado, about an hour east of Pueblo. When they arrived, the house they had purchased wasn't ready and they had to stay in a motel. During that time, one of the church elders, Dr. Perry Nelson, offered to have them over for dinner. Perry was a successful optometrist with offices in two cities. 
He had a wife named Julie and three daughters who were in their late teens. He also owned a nice motorhome and was the part owner of an airplane. Sharon was immediately attracted to him. It wasn't long before the two were engaged in a secret affair, though Sharon wasn't great at keeping things a secret. Whenever they were in public together, like at church, she would watch Perry like a hawk. They were constantly finding excuses to be alone together. It didn't help that Perry was not known to be a faithful husband to Julie. Soon, Perry hired Sharon to do some work at one of his optometry clinics. He had one in Rocky Ford and one in Trinidad, about 80 miles or 128 kilometers southwest. The office manager, Deb, quickly realized that Sharon wouldn't be helping the business at all. She was there so they could have easier access to their affair. Eventually, the affair became too much to hide, and Perry and Sharon made plans to leave their spouses and marry each other. After a number of battles between the pair of husbands and wives, resulting in Mike getting a restraining order prohibiting Perry or Sharon from having unsupervised contact with Rochelle or Denise. Eventually, Mike sought full custody of the girls, and he won. Sharon didn't even get visitation. When each girl turned 13, they could decide for themselves if they wanted to live with their mother. As soon as both of their divorces were final, Sherry and Perry got married. On July 1, 1977, Mrs. Fuller became Sherry Nelson. Not long after the wedding, Mike packed up and moved with the girls back to Ohio. There was nothing Sharon could do about it, so she replaced them. Sharon gave birth to her and Perry's first child, a boy named Danny, at the beginning of March 1978. Sharon continued to work for Perry and it was her job to pay the bills. She was essentially put in charge of finances, which was a terrible idea. She basically stopped paying the bills and stopped putting money into the office manager's unemployment account. When someone tried to order contact lenses, she was told no because they hadn't paid their invoices in three months. In 1980, Sharon gave birth to a daughter, Misty, and she was quickly growing bored with her relationship. Sharon entertained herself by shacking up with Buzz Reynolds, one of Perry's good friends. Not that good, I guess. He was sleeping with the guy's wife. Not surprisingly, Buzz was rather wealthy and Sharon's enjoyment of a man's company seemed to match the size of his wallet. Despite screaming about how Mike wasn't going to take her kids away from her during that divorce, this time she seemed to have no problem leaving her kids with Perry while she lived it up on Buzz's dime. Buzz was more than happy to have his friend's wife in his home with him, until she got pregnant. Then he kicked her out. I think Perry should have found better people to be friends with. Sharon came crawling back to Perry, but he wouldn't let her back into his life. He tossed her clothes out on the front porch, and she moved into a tiny apartment in a seedy part of town. This situation may have seemed like tough love, like it was going to teach her a lesson, but all it did was make her more determined to get back together with Perry. Slowly but surely, she weaseled her way back into his heart and moved back in with her husband and children. She went to Denver and had an abortion, and it was as if the time with Buzz had never happened. Now that Sharon was back, Perry could only afford one employee, and he chose his wife over his office manager of 18 years. When Barb applied for unemployment, she received a letter that said her account hadn't been paid into for over a year. The business financial matters were Sharon's job. She denied it at first, but then just came clean and told Perry she needed the money for other things. Those things included new clothes and even a new car. Barb was completely screwed and there was nothing she could do about it. Perry apologized to her, but he took no action against his wife. She was bleeding him dry and he was nearly bankrupt. 
Sharon met a local handyman named Gary Adams, and once again, she was in love. Gary was married and had two kids, though the older one had moved out by then. She invited him to a big Halloween party she threw, and while there, she told him to stop by the optometry office so they could get to know each other. She just happened to suggest he come by on a day when Perry wouldn't be there. Gary took the bait, and soon they were alone in the office, getting to know each other very well. It wasn't long before the meeting moved to a nearby motel, and her newest affair was off and running. This affair would be her last, though, as she claimed later she believed that Gary was her soulmate. We'll be right back. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. Go to shopify.com forward slash monsters, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com forward slash monsters right now. Shopify.com forward slash monsters. As the months passed, Sharon began playing up her fear of Perry. There was no evidence that Perry was ever physically abusive, but Sharon definitely made Gary think that. Their post-coitus discussions eventually turned into getting rid of Perry permanently. This wouldn't be the first time that Sharon had put that plan into action, though. A year earlier, she and another man she was sleeping with got Perry drunk and pushed him into the pool. Then they went inside with the intention of Sherry finding her husband drown in the pool the next morning. Oh no, what a terrible accident. Only Perry didn't drown. He came to, climbed out of the pool, and was knocking on the door a few minutes later. He just thought he had fallen into the pool. In June of 1983, Gary and a friend waited at a rest stop where they knew Perry was going to be driving by. When his black Volkswagen Beetle passed, Gary pulled onto the highway and caught up with him. Then he waved for him to follow. When they got to a little tavern, they played up the funny coincidence and went inside for some beers. Gary slipped some drugs into Perry's beer and then they waited for it to take effect. But Perry seemed to have quite a tolerance. Maybe the drugs didn't work. Maybe they underestimated how much drinking Perry had been doing lately. Either way, by the time they went to leave, Perry was pretty alert. Gary called off the plan, and Perry's life was spared. Sharon was furious, but Gary promised he would make it right. He found out that Perry was driving up to Denver a few weeks later and asked if he could hitch a ride. On the way up, as they approached Clear Creek, Gary asked Perry to pull over so he could take a piss. By now, it was dark, and when Gary came back to the car, he was in a panic. He said he dropped his wallet down by the creek and couldn't find it. Perry fished a flashlight out of the car and followed his friend down the hill. As Perry was bent over, searching the ground, Gary picked up a large rock and bashed him in the head. Perry fell into the creek, but the ice-cold water must have given him an adrenaline boost because he got back up and began fighting Gary. It was a close fight, but the head wound kept Perry disoriented enough to be pushed into the creek and swept away. Gary climbed back up the hill and drove Perry's Volkswagen toward the guardrail and jumped out. 
The car broke through the metal railing and rolled down onto the bank of the creek. Gary had previously called a friend from a payphone and asked him to pick him up nearby. It's unclear what he told the friend as to why he was wet, filthy, and all scraped up. The next morning, a jogger spotted the car at the bottom of the hill as he ran alongside the creek. He reported the car to police and it was soon identified as Perry's Volkswagen Beetle. Sharon had gone into the Trinidad police station to report Perry missing. It was there that she was notified that her husband's car had been located, but he was still missing. Groups of people began searching up and down the creek, but Perry's body wasn't recovered. They found items that had once been in the car, but no Perry. People did notice that Sharon seemed to be the least concerned out of everyone who was searching. It didn't take authorities long to give up on the search. Some people suggested that Sharon bring photos of Perry to different locations, just in case he was still alive. Maybe he was wandering around with no memories, but Sharon shrugged it off. She was pretty sure he was dead. The reason that Sherry was quick to assume that Perry was dead was because she wanted to collect on the life insurance policies that she had taken out on him months prior. The problem was, she couldn't prove he was dead. As far as the insurance company was concerned, he was only missing. This meant that Sharon couldn't pay the bills and, more importantly, couldn't pay the taxes on the house, so she would eventually get evicted. She was able to put Perry's practice up for sale, though. Friends said they thought it was strange for her to sell her husband's business before they even confirmed he was dead, but Sharon manufactured some excuses. Gary quickly became a regular fixture at the Nelson house while Sharon was still there. He had left his wife and son apparently because having sex with Sharon was just that good. It only took a few months before Gary got tired of Sharon and went back to his wife. Sharon, needing somewhere to live, called up Buzz and got back in his good graces. Now she had another rich man who could take care of her and her kids. On August 14, 1984, more than a year after Perry went missing, a woman spotted a body hung up on some branches in Clear Creek. The body was recovered and positively identified as Perry Nelson, though some people aren't sure it was really him. The body had supposedly been in the creek for a year and it was completely intact. There was little decomposition and no animal activity. Then Sharon came in, identified the body, and quickly had him cremated. It's like it wasn't Perry, but she needed a body to get the life insurance money, so she lied and destroyed the evidence. Then again, the frigid water may have preserved the body. Nobody will ever know at this point. Sharon finally got her insurance payouts, which were more than $250,000. She gave Gary some money for his part and paid her bills as well as the taxes on her home. She left Buzz and moved her and her children back to the Nelson home. She was able to be a free woman once again. But Sharon didn't want to be a free woman. She wanted a man in her life to feed off of. Instead of just taking a break from her men and raising her children, Sharon looked through the newspaper and saw something that she liked. In the spring of 1987, Sharon read through the personal ads in the newspaper and saw an ad written by a Denver-area firefighter named Glenn Harrelson. She learned that Glenn had been married and had two children, but it just didn't work out. His kids were in their late teens, and his relationship with them was good. He and his ex-wife were on friendly terms. Sharon quickly sucked Glenn in, and soon his world would revolve around her. His other friends were seeing him less and less. Of course, she didn't really tell him about all the infidelities with her other relationships. She played the poor widow of a man who died in a car accident. Soon, Glenn offered to have Sharon and the kids move in with him. 
He had a nice home on Columbine Court with a yard where the kids could play. Unfortunately, things don't tend to last long when it comes to Sharon. She eventually left Glenn and moved back to her house. She had rekindled her relationship with Gary, and as far as she was concerned, no one could measure up to Gary. She was under the impression that she and Gary were going to get married and live happily ever after. That wasn't Gary's plan, though. Gary informed Sharon that he had no intention of leaving his wife, and when Glenn persisted in getting her back, she accepted. Now Glenn was in a hurry to lock her down, so on June 2nd, 1988, they got married at the Adams County Courthouse. Mrs. Nelson was now Sharon Harrelson. Then they went to Iowa, where they had a church ceremony to make his mother happy. Even though they were now husband and wife, Sharon refused to give up her house near Trinidad. She continued living there with her kids, and Glenn would come down on weekends. Glenn wasn't happy with the idea, but Sharon claimed that it would be better for her kids to be in a smaller school system. Glenn also worried about a man there that Sharon said was always making unwelcomed advances at her. She was talking about Gary, and she was still regularly sleeping with him, but of course, Glenn didn't know that. Gary pretty much moved in and lived with Sharon during the week. He would leave for the weekend while Glenn was there and then be back at the house during the week. It was a juggling act that honestly seems exhausting, but it kept Sherry fulfilled. For a couple of months. By November, Sharon was tired of her life with Glenn and she was ready for Glenn to die. She told Gary to get rid of him and do it before Thanksgiving. She drew a map to the area around Glenn's house and suggested some spots where he could park. Then she told Gary that she wanted him to bring her Glenn's wedding ring. She explained that he rarely wore it, so it would either be on his dresser or in the little watch pocket on his jeans. Gary, not being very original, believed that they could fake another car accident. Because nobody will think that's suspicious, right? He told Sharon to have him bring his restored Camaro down next week and he could try to stage a speeding accident. It was no use. Glenn rarely drove his Camaro around Denver, let alone a two-and-a-half-hour drive on the highway. Sharon said he was too paranoid of scratching the paint. When he arrived that weekend, he drove his big truck with a snowplow on the front. Gary would have to come up with a new plan. Gary parked his car about a mile away from Glenn's house and walked the rest of the way. He had a lead pipe which he was going to use to knock Glenn out, then he was going to use the can of gas that Sharon said was in the garage to torch the house. He had a twenty-two caliber pistol on him just as backup. The goal was to make it look like a robbery gone bad. If that was his goal, his first mistake was using Sharon's house key to unlock the front door. Once inside, he looked in the bedroom and found Glenn's wedding band sitting on the dresser. Then he went to the living room to wait. Glenn would be home in a few minutes. Glenn pulled his truck into the garage and as he came in through the door into the house, Gary brought the pipe down on the back of his head. Glenn went down but got back up. Just like Perry, Gary was unable to knock the man out with just one blow. Gary hit Glenn again, but he still didn't go down. He grabbed Gary's arm and pushed him to the ground. Gary reached in his jacket pocket and pulled out the gun. He shot Glenn twice in the head and the fight was over. Glenn was laying in a heap in the entryway. Gary's second mistake was that he did a very poor job of making it look like the house had been burglarized. He scattered some clothes around, but didn't pull out any drawers. He didn't grab any electronics. By the time the investigators got there, they had no belief that the house had been burglarized. 
His third mistake was that he went down to the basement and removed a grate from one of the windows and put a chair under it to make it look like someone had climbed in, but he didn't remove the cobwebs. When the investigator saw the old, dusty cobwebs over the window, he knew that nobody had climbed in or out of that opening. Gary placed some papers and magazines on Glenn's body and then took the gas can from the garage and poured it around Glenn. He lit a cigarette and stuck it in a book of matches to act as a makeshift fuse. He left the house through the garage, which he left open, and after a few minutes, the cigarette lit the book of matches and the gasoline ignited. Gary returned to Sherry's house and presented her with the wedding ring. He returned her house key and they burned the map that she had drawn. As far as they were concerned, they had gotten away with murder once. They would obviously get away with it again. When the police investigators arrived on the scene, they found two twenty-two caliber shell casings in the living room. They pieced together that it looked like the killer waited for Glenn to come home and ambushed him. With no sign of forced entry, they suspected the killer had a key. It was about 3 p.m. when Detective Elaine Tigert and Detective Glenn Trainer got in their unmarked cruiser and started the hours-long drive to Sharon's house. They hadn't even hit the road and were already suspicious of not only Gary's death, but Perry's death as well. When they got to the house, with a couple of local sheriff's deputies as their guide, Sharon claimed to have no knowledge of who would want to kill her husband. They asked her where she was when Glenn was murdered and she quickly claimed that she was at home, despite not actually knowing when her husband was murdered. The detectives found that to be suspicious. There wasn't much else they could do that night, so they asked Sharon to come into the police station in the morning and she agreed. By the time Sharon arrived at the station the next day, detectives Tigard and Trainer had already learned about Gary Adams. They were told that after Perry died, Gary was immediately living with Sharon, and after the insurance money came in, he was suddenly driving a new truck. The detectives made note of this information, and when Sharon arrived for her interview, they went through the normal background questions and then began asking about affairs. Sharon was adamant that neither she nor Glenn were having an affair. They asked her if there was someone that people might think she was having an affair with, and Sharon said no. It was clear to the detectives that Sharon did not want them to know that she was close with Gary Adams. They told her that they knew that she knew who killed Glenn and pushed her as hard as they could. It worked and she confessed to knowing who killed her husband, but she claimed that she wasn't involved. She told them that she would tell them what happened, but not there. She said there were too many people around that she couldn't trust, so all three of them picked up their stuff and left the station together. Sharon had the detectives pick up her kids, and then they all drove north for a while until she instructed the detective to get off the highway and stop at a Pizza Hut restaurant. You may not know this, but Pizza Hut used to be a sit-down restaurant. The one where I grew up had a salad bar in the middle, and you would order your pizza, go to the salad bar, and then someone would bring the pizza out to your table when it was ready. It was a crazy time. Once there, the kids went into the arcade, and Sharon said that she was tired of living a lie. When the detectives sat down at the booth in the Pizza Hut, they wanted to know who killed Glenn Harrelson, but Sharon was going back to the beginning. She began explaining how she and Perry were having financial trouble and how she had fallen in love with Gary Adams, and that Gary suggested he kill Perry. Then she told them that Gary had taken a trip with Perry where he killed him and set it up to look like a car accident. She said that Gary returned and said it was done, and they didn't talk about it again. Then, after she married Glenn, Gary couldn't let her go and he killed Glenn because he was jealous. 
It was 100% Gary, and she had nothing to do with it. Despite that claim, she was still placed under arrest, and officers from Denver drove down and picked her up. Detective Trainer gave the kids a ride to a family member's house. After that, an arrest warrant was issued for Gary, and he was picked up and placed under arrest at his home. Investigators knew that Sharon was not a simple bystander of Gary murdering over jealousy. They learned that Sharon would have gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars from equity in his house, insurance payments, and the sale of businesses he had invested in. Then she would have received his pension, which was $1,200 a month, for the rest of her life. She and Gary could have lived like royalty in the house that was paid off by the death of her second husband. And they learned of the $50,000 Sherry had paid Gary after Perry was murdered. She had hired a hit on her first husband. Sharon went on to plead guilty to two counts of first-degree murder, and Gary was going to go to trial, but when he found out that Sharon would testify against him, he also pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. He also told a jailhouse snitch where he hid the gun he used, and police recovered it and matched it to the murder of Glenn. Sharon is what we call a black widow. She married men, and then she would kill them, usually for the benefit of money. She didn't care that she took a son, a friend, a grandfather, and a father. A father to her own children. She was willing to cause all that pain so she could collect money. Because she was a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hi everyone, this is Jillian with Court Junkie. Court Junkie is a true crime podcast that covers court cases and criminal trials using audio clips and interviews with people close to the cases. Court Junkie is available on Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. 
but some things you can depend on. Like in home heating, Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see certaireland.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Stores influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Boomers from just €18.72. Half price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of €50 Euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly.